All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast. I'm here with Dr. C. Brown, LSU Ag Center entomologist. Uh, if you've noticed the last couple episodes, we've kind of focused on what happened in 2019 and what we're looking for in 2020. We've had Dr. Michael Deliberto with economics. We've had Dr. Trey Price with diseases. And we got Steve with entomology. So welcome, Steve. Glad you're here. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, Tell us what went on in 2019. Okay, so I guess starting with cotton, uh, thrips in 2019 were really non-existent, specifically for a lot of the crops, a lot of our guys that planted, especially early, which is kind of backwards for us because a lot of the guys that get in in April normally fight thrips the hardest. Um, Then into May, they start to taper off. Well, that wasn't really the case this year. Uh, we saw thrips numbers very low early, which is rare, but we also had good growing conditions. It was hot, it was dry, and so the cotton came out of the ground, wasn't struggling. And so I think that coupled with low thrips numbers, actively growing plants, low thrips numbers, we didn't have a whole lot of issues, at least in the, the delta, the north part of the state out of thrips. You moved into central Louisiana, uh, thrips showed up late. So a lot of the guys that planted towards the tail end of May because they were too wet, were absolutely destroyed by thrips. And so seed treatments played out very quickly. Uh, Some guys had to make multiple foliar applications. So it really was just a timing and environmental issue this year with thrips uh, across different parts of the state. So, uh, but for the most part, where guys did use seed treatments other than extreme, where they had extreme pressure that needed an overspray, uh, the seed treatments that guys use held very well. Um, The seed treatment that I typically recommend, the best performing ones in our trials is Eris. Uh, Eris is typically number one. Number two is going to be Gaucho at, uh, at our full rate, which is 0.375 milligrams of active ingredient per seed with an overtreatment of acephate. Typically, guys get the dealer to overtreat with acephate, and then that's going to give us two modes of action and a little bit of a boost to get uh, thrips under control. And at least in the trials I've conducted over the past few years, the Eris and the Gaucho and acephate typically are the best two performing seed treatments we have. And, um, and for the most part, if we give good growing conditions, they won't have to be over-treated with a foliar treatment. So now if it comes off dry and cold, or excuse me, wet and cold, then we may have to come back with a rescue treatment because mm-hmm. they just, it, the cotton stagnates. But for the most part, I guess going into 2020, um, I would recommend, you know, gaucho seed treatment, full rate with an over-treatment of acephate. And so... Uh, depending on the dealer, if you overtreat with acephate, some dealers will let you bring it back, some won't. So if you get the dealer to overtreat it, you may be stuck with it. So just make mm-hmm. sure that if you get if you have that, you're going to plant cotton. So yeah. because you don't want to be stuck with acres, you're not going to plant. Yeah, so, had that this year. Yeah. Uh, what about plant bugs? I, from what my growers' general rule, they they didn't spray a lot for plant bugs this year. You know, it was a it was a light plant bug year. It was that way in the Delta as well, too. Not just mm-hmm. not just Louisiana, but Mississippi had a very light plant bug year. Um, you know, a lot of guys got away with a few sprays. They're not you know, I've talked to some growers that sprayed once. Some sprayed mm-hmm. five, six times. A lot of that's la- uh, what's in your landscape. If you're bordered by corn on all four sides, or you've got CRP, mm-hmm. that's going to make a big difference because you're going to have migrating adults coming out of you know tasseling, silking corn into cotton. And so you're going to have to fight those. CRP's got a lot of flowering plants. They're going to move out of those flowering plants, and they're going to start making their way into cotton. So landscape effects have a lot to do with that. Also, just general population. Um, 
just the amount we have in the environment. Yeah. Uh, we also had more cotton acres this year than we've had in a while, so that may have diluted some of our pest population numbers as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just typically, uh, we had a much lighter year this year. Central Louisiana um, and then the Red River part of the state, cotton growing area, they fought, we actually fought plant bugs pretty hard. Yeah. So um, some of the cotton that we manage here on the research station got sprayed upwards of 10, 11 times. Yeah. for plant bugs. Now granted we have a our thresholds are much lower. Actually we don't really have a threshold but at the same time our numbers were here and they were mm-hmm. up. As you go up the Red River they were there as well too. So it really kind of, I think that depended a lot on the amount of corn acres that were around too and we had a lot more corn in this area, mm-hmm. a lot more corn in the, the Red River area so I think that played a lot into why we saw so much an increase in, in uh, plant bugs. Okay. Let's talk about worms and cotton. I okay. mean, you know, the, the BT, you know, there's a lot of talk of it about resistance and things aren't working. What we got? So I just re- I just got back from a meeting uh, last week, and the big major discussion was BT failures in cotton. And um, what we're seeing is there's no, no good news. I mean, mm-hmm. BT is the dual-gene cottons, the Bulgar 2s, the Twin Links, those are still failing. I mean, the the proteins are falling apart in the presence of bollworms. Um, we do have chemical control. The diamides, Prevathon, Besiege work very well for controlling them. However, we need to get the rates, rates high enough. If you're, you know, I typically don't recommend anything less than 20 ounces of Prevathon and 10 ounces of Besiege. Mm-hmm. If you're chasing worms, so if you miss an egg lay or you miss some worms and they're down in the canopy and you're chasing live worms, you cannot go with anything less than 10 ounces of a seed or 20 ounces of Prevathon. Um, if you're on top of egg lay, you could probably reduce that rate a little bit, but this is, this is a perfect situation. You've got one or two day old eggs, no neonates, you know, you're catching them, the timing is perfect. Timing is really more important than rate. Rate is important when it comes to killing worms inside the canopy, but when you're killing eggs, timing is much more important than the rate because a 16-ounce shot of Prevathon will kill a worm as good as a 20-ounce shot of Pre- or excuse me, a neonate that's just hatched as well as 20 ounces. Yeah. So, you know, it's a management consideration, and if you're, and these these situations are rare that you can catch an egg lay that perfectly. But if you do catch an egg lay that perfectly, timing is going to be more important than rate on dual gene. So this is Bulgar twos mm-hmm. and twin links, triple gene cotton. We do not recommend sprays on egg lay. Yeah. So. And our threshold for egg lay sprays in dual gene is 20% eggs. So -hmm. when I say 20% eggs, that means if you scout 10 plants and you find an egg on two of those plants, it can just be one egg on two of those, that's 20%. Not you're finding 20 eggs on one plant. That's that's not, it's a a number, how many you catch out of like 10 plants or 100, whatever makes 20%. Um, But back to triple gene, we don't recommend sprays on egg lay and triple gene cotton because it is still working. Um, we, our threshold in triple gene cotton is 6% fruit injury. So that's 6%. So if you collect 100 pieces of fruit, squares and bowls, and six of them have holes in them, you're, you trigger threshold. Yeah. So you trigger a spray. Uh, triple gene cotton, especially in the Delta and the northwest part of the state, <clears throat> has been performing very well. Triple gene cotton in the central part of the state has not been performing as well as we've seen it in other parts. Not to say it's resistance, I think it's just, it's the amount of the population pressure, mm-hmm. and then you have dips in BT expression. So 
if a cotton plant is stressed in any way, water stress, drought stress, uh, really any kind of stressor, BT expression, which is controlled by genes, takes a dive. It falls off. And then so if you get a large egg lay or a large worm flight that comes in, say we get six inches of rain, and you have a big egg lay and the expression takes a, a dive, worms are going to walk through it. So uh, even with triple gene, it's not bulletproof and you still have to scout. So, I mean, it is a, it's a better management tool than the Bulgar 2s and the Twin Links, but it's not bulletproof by any means. So. Okay, while we're, while we're on the subject of worms, let's talk about refuge. How important is refuge planted cotton, I mean not cotton, in corn? So it's, it's federally required. It's, well, it's I know it's federally required. <laughs> let's, let's get it straight. It's, it's required. Right. But it's, it's how very, important is it to be required? It's very important because that's our only line of defense that we have against, against resistance. Yeah. Planting, planting a refuge and all BT corn today is either stacked or pyramided trait. They're going to have more than one BT gene, mm-hmm. which kicks our southern kicks us in Louisiana since we're considered the south. We grow cotton. We have a 20% refuge for more than one insect gene. Yeah. If you have a single gene, this is just going to be like Herculex corn. Herculex has a 50%, but from what I've been told, Pioneer and these companies are no longer selling single gene corns. It's all stacked, pyramided, and so the vast, vast majority of corn, pretty, I would say greater than 95% of the, the hybrids that we buy are going to have to have a 20% refuge. And it's something that, you know, this refuge component, us planting refuge corn, will help delay resistance, which helps preserve how effective our BT is in cotton. So the management strategies that we practice in corn help save cotton production. Because yeah. well. 95-plus percent of bollworms funnel through corn first, and they move straight to cotton. And so. according to 2019 state acres in cotton, in corn, we had twice as much corn as we did cotton. So right. 20% of that is a pretty big area to help right. kind of mm-hmm. dilute the population, I guess, is what we're looking for. Yep. And uh, didn't you said there's a CSP enhancement, too, for uh, plant and increase refuge requirements. Yes. Yes. So... Yeah. That's another, I don't know what the payment is, but I mean, there's, there's some kind of, there's an enhancement that if you increase your refuge acres by 25%, NRCS will give you an, another yeah. enhancement. So. And uh, there, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's there. It's might as well, if you're in CS, if you're going into, if you're already in it, you can't do it, but if you're going into it, right. you need to look at all enhancements on CSP. Right. Uh, all right, we've covered cotton. Let's just go over corn. I know there's not a lot in corn. You just talked about refuge. What else? Anything uh, else? Uh, the biggest thing with corn, with cover crops becoming more of a, becoming a bigger part of guys' management, mm-hmm. and especially in the fall, is that when we plant anything, whether it's grain sorghum or soybeans, cotton, corn, whatever it is, behind cover crops, you've got to have a robust seed treatment. Mm-hmm. If you don't use a seed treatment, you've got to have something in furrow. And so whether that's counter or, you know, you do a... a in furrow spray of bifenthrin or whatever it may be, if you've got cover crops or your corn behind corn, you've got to have a good seed treatment mm-hmm. because you know I've got I've got years of data that we don't rotate our corn ground that we have in Macon Ridge. It's been corn behind corn for eight years, and wherever we don't use a robust seed treatment, we lose on average of fifty to sixty bushels to the acre, and that's mm-hmm. just to below ground feeding. Yeah. So, I mean, we you definitely, it pays off when you've got something like cover crops because that green bridge is there all year long. Yeah. Basically give insects a buffet to feed on, you know, throughout the entire winter. 
And then if you don't rotate and your minimum are reduced till, corn behind corn, multiple years in a row, mm -hmm. you build up a lot of below ground insect issues, wire worm, southern corn root worm, that will really take a toll on your yield. So it's a very important to not, <clears throat> not just go with the cheapest seed treatments you can find, especially if you're behind corn or you've got cover crops. Yeah. You need to protect your cash crop. Well, what about, uh, what about soil? Because, I mean, the cover crops are becoming, people are planting more cover crops. Some of it is part of CSP and Equip, but some of it's just people are a little interested in trying some. What about soybeans? Because soybeans, if you're going to plant cover crops initially, well, the first time, you want to you don't want to plant corn behind it. You want soybeans because right. they'll generally soybeans come up through anything. So, right. what about soybeans in the seed treatment? Same thing. I mean, it's uh, there's no uh, with seed with soybeans. It's really kind of a it's a buyer's market. I mean, you've yeah. got. The seed treatments that we see in soybeans don't really make that much of a difference. It's just the fact that you have one. Mm -hmm. You've got some kind of insecticide seed treatment on the bean to protect it. And so soybeans can compensate a lot better than a mo most of our other crops. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you've got a lot of biomass in the area, you know, when you've got a lot or you're planting into green or you haven't killed it well enough mm -hmm. before, you really need to have a seed treatment on soybeans just because... Yeah, we, we need, with soybean prices the way they are, the low vigor issues we've been experiencing, and the low seed germ, you know, we really need to be able to get every bean we can out yeah. of the ground. And we so, saw that. Well, we saw that this year with low vigor, and yeah. they came up and just sit there. Right. And, and then, that's a recipe for disaster when it and, comes to bugs, especially then, if it's a cover crop situation. Yeah. And so, cover crops, it was worse. Yes. Like, it just, thing. But what about now? And you said, you mentioned the Green Bridge. I mean, we've had we had people this year that they some of it was able to kill early, cover crops early. Some they they just literally couldn't get in the field until either a week before planting or or in some cases at planting. Does, I mean, the Green Bridge. You kind of speak about that just a little bit. So, as the ag center, as entomologists, and as the ag center in general, we recommend that the field be clean at a minimum four to ideally six weeks before you plant. Mm -hmm. I mean, and yeah. you don't want, and I'm, what I mean, when you drop that planter in there, you want it to be crunchy. I mean, yeah. you want it to be graveyard dead. You know, you dig the roots up out of the ground, there's no life left in them. I mean, because even if roots, even if the root stock or the, the, the root mass is still alive, you'll have below ground insects that can still feed. Mm -hmm. This gives our plants enough time to actually die desiccate and then either starve or force the insects out. So that's what we say by breaking the green bridge because that yeah. bridge is, you know, that bridge is basically the fall to the spring. So that green bridge is a is a host that three-cornered alfalfa hoppers, um, mm -hmm. you know, different types of beetles, thrips, whatever it may be, will actually feed on that until you plant your cash crop and you kill your cover crop or you kill it beforehand and it's not dead all the way. You plant your cotton or your corn in it and then it comes up, and they immediately jump off of the cover crop or whatever's weeds, whatever mm -hmm. may be there to it your could cash be crop. We, and, and it could, could be, be weeds. weeds. Yeah. yeah, and then it, even like things like henbit. Henbit, yeah. you know, guys tell me henbit's the best cover crop because it's free. Yeah. And so I mean, it does a good job. Yeah, henbit's the same way. You need henbit needs to be dead before you plant anything into it. Yeah. So. Well, and we saw some some burn down issues this year, just strictly because it rained so much. Right. And uh, and we're also seeing some resistance with mare's tail and, right. and ryegrass and all those things, yeah. it's, it's becoming more of an issue. And so we've got to take that into account with the green bridge and insecticides. So right. what about, uh, let's see, well, let's talk about soybeans. Let's talk about, 
Red banded stink bugs, I know myself, Aurel, Kylie, this spring we swept bunches of clover fields, just sides of the roads. Mm -hmm. I think between all of us, we only caught two red banded stink bugs. Right. What happened to this? I mean, everybody was saying this is going to be a stink bug here. What happened? Uh, well, it's so I swept in February and I mm -hmm. found I was finding one per sweep out, you know, at the Alexander, at Dean Lee mm -hmm. Research Station. So I think they were in the more southern latitudes of the state. Um, you know, I've talked to consultants, other entomologists. They were catching stink bugs very early, mm -hmm. enough to concern us. But then it was like there was a line drawn across the state about Alexandria where you get further north than that, they just kind of disappeared. And so um, we definitely saw red bandits early. Um, they disappeared mm -hmm. until about May, really June. And then our earliest maturing beans, we had some group threes that we planted that we look at for guys that run a cane, a soybean rotation. And so they, every red banded stink bug in the area jumped on them. So what it was is they were out in the environment waiting, mm -hmm. and as soon as something was ready, or these soybeans started getting ready, they immediately made a mass of migration to it. And it wasn't just red bandits, it was green, southern yeah. greens and browns. And so there was huge populations on the earliest maturing soybeans. Mm -hmm. Once guys got those out, got them managed, we had another lull because we had about six weeks before our normal planted soybeans started to mature. Mm -hmm. And once that happened, they started kind of slowly trickling their way in because mm -hmm. we had a lot more acres turn at the same time and so it diluted the populations yeah. down and I think they were more concentrated very much in the south and the central and southern part of the state and then as beans started maturing further north they started slowly migrating their way north. So. I, know, I know from checking beans that I swept and checked and looked at I caught way more greens and browns than I think I have in years past. Right. I mean, it, and the thing was, you you might catch an occasional red bandit. Now we had fields that we sprayed, but we only sprayed them once. And but they were all, but there were twice or three times as many greens and browns in there. Yeah. As, I mean, it was kind of like surprising when you looked in your sweep net. Right. And I think it was. I think our red bandits were still recovering from the mm -hmm. winter. Two, I guess, two winters ago. Because um, they took a really heavy population that we lost a lot of population with that, and that the natural species, the browns and the southern greens, aren't hurt nearly as severely as the red bandits by cold weather because yeah. red bandits are invasive. And so, I think we had a buildup of those populations. The lack of winter allowed them mm -hmm. to really, you know, we didn't have host desiccation, we didn't have, uh, you know, host loss to freezing. And then the southern greens and the browns and those other native stink bugs were there to just multiply, especially in the spring. And uh, and um, so it was, it really, uh, it, it made a, I think it made a difference with our population numbers we were finding this year. So, um, but looking at our stink bug efficacy trials, um, most of our standard products worked. Asaphate and bifenthrin was the standard. I mean, that was the, it worked. That was kind of our, that's our go-to that we mm -hmm. use, and it performed as well this year as I've ever seen it performed. Uh, performed the, um, a lot of mixtures did really well. Uh, bifenthrin and imidacloprid that guys can kind of tank mix on their own. Mm -hmm. everything, everything worked. Anything in 2020 for soybeans that we need to be concerned with? Uh, the only thing I could think of to be concerned with is going to be there's rumors from different companies that uh, insecticide prices are going to start increasing. Now, I don't know. It was rumored to happen in 19. I don't know if it really happened much, especially with the, the whole the Chinese and American trade politics going on. There was uh, fears that 
acephate and things like bifenthrin that are manufactured in China primarily were going to double. I don't think those fears came to fruition. That rumor is still persisting out, but that's something just to keep in mind is that insecticides may increase in cost depending on where this trade deal goes with China because the vast majority of our commonly used insecticides are actually manufactured in China, so okay. uh, especially their active components. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, as far as as far as insect issues, we're not really seeing any kind of nothing really just groundbreaking in soybeans. Um, worm issues this year were very almost non-existent. Uh, we had loopers showed up for about two weeks and then disappeared, and then um, you know corn earworms are pretty much non-existent for us in Louisiana. So that's Really, really what I've seen in beans is mainly stink bugs, some few early season issues with guys not reusing a good enough seed treatment. And then uh, we had just a lot of the vigor issues that we saw this year were, were really kind of exacerbating insect injury. Okay. Pretty good synopsis of 2019 all the way through 2020. You can mention, I mean, I would say you can mention a little bit about sugarcane aphids and milo, but we don't have enough milo to, <laughs> yeah. to really, I mean, as far as I know, I've only got two fields and, you know. Sugarcane aphids, I mean, we can control them. Transform, Savanto, both work very well. Plant, plant, plant it early. Uh, if you're going to plant late, use a seed treatment. Even if you plant early, use a seed treatment. Seed treatments control aphids for about up to about 30 to 40 days. And then uh, just be on top of aphids. Normally, if you plant if you plant in the corn, corn window with grain sorghum, it's a normally a one-and-done shot with Savanto or Transform. I mean, really... Okay. We can make one application, and we don't normally have to do it again. Right. So they can be very good, easily controlled. Good deal. That pretty much covers all the standard crops. I got one little thing I got um, because you are the chairman of the Louisiana Pollinator Committee. I'm bringing this up because the Louisiana beekeepers and the USDA are having their annual fall field day, November the second. I don't think you're on the program. Today. I'm not. Not the least of them. They haven't told me. Yeah, so. you're not. I, I've looked at it. You're not. But. Uh, not that I don't appreciate you coming and talking, but yeah, it's, you know. No but they are. I have to put this. In. I told uh, one of the, one of the board members asked me if I would mention it to. I mean, we have beekeepers in Northeast Louisiana, and you are you are the committee chairman for the state conservation. The Louisiana Pollinator Cooperative Conservation Program. That's it. You know. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, I had to, but I told her I would mention it on our podcast for anybody that wanted to come down, wanted to become a beekeeper. You come down, you go to the field day, it's at Baton Rouge, it's on Ben-Hur, uh, it's USDA Bee Lab, yeah. yeah, and they have a really good field day. I haven't been in several years, but it's been good. If you want to get into bees or you're in bees now, come down. Anything else we need to talk about? Uh, one thing I will say about corn, um, companies out there are pushing VIP corn a lot. These mm-hmm. uh, VIP is the new shiny toy um, that a lot of these companies are really trying to push. Um, VIP corn... Based on the trials that we conduct as entomologists, and it's not just me in Louisiana, it's most my colleagues in the Mid-South and the East, um, VIP for us does not economically pay off in corn. So, and why I say not planting VIP corn is 3-gene cotton has VIP in it as well, the VIP 3A protein. And so, like I said earlier, 95 to probably one, almost 100% of our corn airworm funnel through corn before they come to cotton. Well, they're already exposed to this VIP gene in corn, this VIP protein. And so they're going to, if they survive, they're going to make it straight out of being selected for one generation on corn and come straight to cotton. And mm-hmm. so if they're resistant, because they're exposed to it, because we planted it, they're going to walk right through our, our cotton acres. And so that's why... 
We don't see a yield response uh, when we plant VIP corn. We actually see greater yields when we plant older hybrids like Double Pro or Yield Guard Herculex. Um, and so, realistically, what BT corn was originally designed for was to kill boars. BT mm-hmm. corn never was designed to kill control ear feeders. And I got a bunch of questions this year about I was getting some ear feeding from corn earworm. You know, how much yield am I going to lose? And there's was some the newest research was published I think last year out of Mississippi State where it takes 40 to 60 kernels per ear to cause, and that's mm-hmm. every ear in the field, to equal a bushel loss in the field. So these aren't tip kernels. These aren't things that the combine's going to blow out the back. These are big yield-contributing kernels. So these are mature kernels, and it takes 40 to 60 of them being eaten by corn mm-hmm. earworm per ear on every ear of the field to equal a bushel. That's okay. a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And so even though VIP may keep ears clean, um, you know, you're not seeing a yield increase from having that protein in corn. And there's no causative relationship between aflatoxin and ear feeding worms. I had a grower ask me about that this year. The guys have tried to prove that for many years. We still have got no causative link, no cause and effect, no really link to them at all that ear feeding and ear damage causes an increase in aflatoxin. Aflatoxin numbers are really just based on environment. Yeah. And so worms really, from the research, play very little to no role in any mm-hmm. kind of aflatoxin number influencing corn. Yeah. So, you know, plant, I guess the takeaway is we don't need VIP. You, and if you get a little bit of tip feeding, a little bit of injury in corn, unless the unless they've literally eaten a quarter of the, the, the corn ear or they've eaten half of it, you're not going to see any appreciable loss in yield. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, we've seen that with people planting corn for ducks and stuff, and you see it and you go out there and it's got... Every year's got a worm in it, mm-hmm. but they're just all right on the end. I right. mean, they don't, when it's all said and done, they don't eat that much. No, you know? they don't. So, all right. Well, we appreciate it, you coming on and talking to us and giving us an update and tell us what to look forward to for 2020. Maybe next year we'll get you to come back. I know you're you're in Alexandria now, but you still come to the Northeast on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. So, I'm, I'm statewide, so if you need me from Gulf of Mexico to Arkansas, yep. I'll be there. If so. you need something, just call us. We'll be sure and get in touch with you. And we'll pass on the message to, from whoever. All right, I think that's all we got. Appreciate it, y'all. If you got any questions, comments, send us an email. Give us a call. Thank y'all. See y'all next week.